Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our feature expert interview, and it's our pleasure to be joined by the founder of BaseballHQ.com and the proprietor of RonChandler.com. It's Ron Chandler. Not surprisingly, Ron, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. Thanks, Patrick. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to join you here. Well, before we start talking about your new site and your other book, as you call it, uh, I wanted to talk briefly about experts' drafts in Master Notes a little later on in the show. I'll be talking about the labor mix draft, which just took place, and what lessons people can take away from that. And you're in one early experts' draft, the FSTA in January. Do you have a strategy going into those things? And, and more particularly, do you, do you ever use these as experimental grounds rather than I want to win at all cost type things? Uh, yeah, I think for the most part, these are all sort of experimental grounds for me. I mean, we're all kind of looking for that, that, that secret strategy that's going to uh, put us over the top on a consistent basis. So whenever I come up with a new idea, uh, uh, these experts leases are basically the ultimate uh, testing ground because you're up against uh, some of the top uh, analysts and writers in the industry and, and they're all trying to win and and of course i'm also trying to win needless to say but uh yeah I, they're they're laboratories for me i use that i've always done it that way and can i presume that you had a uh, a strategy going into fsta this year that uh, will be reflected shall we say in in the book and your new website yeah yeah absolutely i mean I, i've been working on the, this 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 new uh uh, broad assessment uh, balance sheet plan now for uh, probably half a year, and uh, so I took it out for its first live test run in the FSTA back in January, and uh, was very, very pleased with the results. Good. We'll talk about that in detail a little later on, uh, but the FSTA, you play XFL in November at First Pitch Arizona. You play Tout Wars in the American League. I believe I'll be one of your opponents this year. All of these drafts have pretty stable membership, and I'm wondering, and that's a lot like home leagues, how does familiarity with competitors affect your ability to do strategic planning for good or ill? Uh, well, well, on the strategic side, it really doesn't affect it too much. I still have my <clears throat> my underlying uh, strategy for the draft and, and how I'm going to approach things. Tactically, though, it does kind of... Uh, force me to tweak some some things here and there, and for the most part, it's I, I know certain owners have certain favorite players. I mean, uh, uh, some guys like their home team, some guys like young players. Um, there, there's a couple of guys who are very heavy on position scarcity, so I know, especially early in the draft, the types of players they're likely going to target, and depending upon where I am seated in, in a snake draft, um, I, I might be able to figure out exactly what type of player will drop to me because I know the guys in front of me uh, have certain tendencies. And in the auctions, I know that certain players will get overbid, so uh, I will kind of cross them off my list because, yeah, well, in, in AL Tout, uh, for the longest time, you know, I knew I never was going to get Robinson Cano because he was always going to go to the Colton Wolf team. They uh, were huge fans of his, and uh, so it wasn't even a consideration for me. But, uh, I mean, little things like that shape the way I draft, but uh, for the most part, the underlying strategy is, is, uh, is not touched. I remember a home league I played in. There was one one of the owners, good player too, and uh, but he was a huge, huge Cal Ripken fan, and everybody in the league knew it. And uh, no, even in Cal Ripken's decline phase, uh, you could count on his name coming out of draft, and and kind of everybody at the table grinning and just bidding up and up and up. And this guy would just doggedly hang in there, and he always got him, but usually had a pr a pretty bad overpay. And I remember at uh, the National League last year, I think at Tout where everybody sat down and somebody just yelled out, uh, Lenny's going, Lenny uh, um, Melnick is, is going to uh, 
punt saves and and nominate closers for all of us to bid on. So everybody kind of knew that in advance, and he just grinned and did it anyway. Yeah, well, in the early stages of the uh, the Lima plan back in the late '90s, early 2000s, when when folks started catching on that I was. Uh, what I was doing in regards to pitchers, uh, looking for high-skilled middle relievers type uh, type guys. Uh, eventually, I started getting bidding up, bidding, bidded up on those guys as well. So uh, it's the way the marketplace works. You know, you figure out where somebody has an edge and you try to beat them to it. How much do you rely on ADPs and and that kind of public information, large-scale data to to assess how where you might get a guy or certain targets that you're looking at? I look at it quite a bit, actually. I, I, I certainly don't use it to draft off of, but I think it's an important component in the whole preparation process. I mean, you would not draft off of ADPs no sooner than you really should be drafting off of your own uh, st- uh, projections list. It's really the marriage of the two and seeing where there are differences that really is, is, is where you can build in profit. You know, if the ADPs are higher on a player than you are, then you know that's somebody you probably are not going to get. And if you're higher on a certain player than the ADPs are, uh, there's profit opportunity there. So I think it's it's kind of the marriage of the two lists that provides the, the most intelligence uh, uh, for when you're drafting. So yeah, I think it's, it's an important component. I've always thought it was a little bit dangerous, Ron, because what happens in the aggregate is often not reflected by what happens in the particular. And so uh, I've, I've been bitten so many times by thinking, well, I, I'm going to wait an extra little while on this player that I want because the ADPs say nobody likes them. But it doesn't just because most people don't like him and affect the average doesn't mean there's not somebody at my table who does like him and throws my whole that whole tactical approach out the window. Well, sure. I mean, there's nothing is 100 percent. But you know, if if somebody is is rated as a uh, a round ten guy and you think he's around six, you probably can wait till round eight or nine and get him. Um, it won't be all the time, but a good a good amount of time you're able to get him if if, if the ADPs are, are, are a lot higher. And uh, you know the thing is, and, and you're right about the the particular not being reflective of the aggregate. I, I, that's an important point I've been making lately as well. You only have 23 shots at, at these players. That's that's your whole roster size, and it's really tough to cover all your risk and all the variability in those 23 players. So. Uh, you know, if if in those shots you're able to uh, game the ADPs in in uh, 15 or 20 of your players and, and miss out on a few, I think you've done pretty well. I was looking at the BaseballHQ.com ADP aggregations, and I believe that's all NFBC based. They had the top three as Trout, Goldschmidt, Harper, Kershaw at the four. That's been pretty much the chalk all the way along. It was the same the other night at the online labor mix draft, and yet. Trout was not the top fantasy performer last year, and I don't think he was the year before either. And and in our projections, at least, Kershaw is by far and away the projected highest value player. Who do you think should be the top pick if you had first pick overall in a straight mix draft this year in 2016? Well, you know, Kershaw hasn't been the top pick except for his his first full season in the majors. But I think it's when you're looking at these top picks, you're looking at several variables. You're looking at high-end skill, but you're also looking at consistency and health and uh, and you want to minimize your risk as, as much as possible. Of the top, the players who are going at the top, Trout is the only one who has actually earned top 10 value for the past four years in a row. I mean, uh, Goldschmidt hasn't, Harper certainly hasn't, and Kershaw, I mean, has a longer track record than Trout, actually, and, and there is a very strong argument for drafting Kershaw first. I personally don't like drafting a pitcher in the first round because uh, I want to be able to accumulate uh, 
counting stats early, and pitchers only really accumulate to strikeouts. Wins are, are tougher to project, whereas batters, you're, you're contributing to home runs and RBIs and runs, uh, and stolen bases perhaps, uh, and I think it's important to accumulate those, those numbers early. So I would still draft Trout number one, but uh, again, Kershaw is, is, is certainly justifiable in that spot. In the ADPs, Carlos Correa is number six, Chris Bryant is number 12. They both went right around there in the labor draft. And it seems to me they're ignoring some pretty substantial experience risk, for want of a better term. Uh, Carlos Correa certainly had a fine year. Chris Bryant was uh, terrific last year as well. But there are holes in their games, and it seems like anybody taking them at that high a level is really absorbing a, a pretty significant amount of risk to me. How do you feel about a lofty placement for a relatively inexperienced players like these? Yeah, I think it's crazy. Um you want to have that track record up front. We really don't know who these young players are. Uh, there, there have been studies done that show how long it takes statistics to uh, to stabilize, to get a read on, on what uh, they really are. And, and batting average, for instance, doesn't stabilize for almost two full seasons. So when you look at uh, you know a guy like Correa, even a guy like uh, Francisco Lindor batted over 300 in, in a small number of at-bats, they are clearly uh, not... Uh, 300 hitters for for all we know because they haven't reached that 900 at bat plateau yet. So to be making projections based upon these small samples uh, is very high risk. Um, these players have to have to uh, return, uh, basically outperform anything they've ever done before in order re- to return par value, and that's just a huge rich risk in the first round. I'd much rather have somebody who has a track record. But what do you make of a of a young player like uh, Carlos Correa, say, or uh, um, any any player of that experience level? And you look at his skills from the previous year, and you say to yourself, okay, he doesn't have a track record of of getting this kind of batting average. But his expected batting average in Correa's case last year, using the Baseball HQ metric of expected batting average, was three hundred, and he batted two seventy nine. He was actually full value for at least the average. I'm not going to say the home runs necessarily or, or the, the the power that he displayed. But how much can we trust the skills even after a relatively short sub-400 at-bat sample size? I don't really think you can. Um, Just like if if, if somebody has a huge uh, 300 at-bat stretch, you can't project that that's something that will continue over the the remaining 200 at-bats of a certain season. Players tire out. Players, uh, pitchers adjust to a player. I mean, there's, there's this whole cat and mouse game that goes on, and you can be sure that over this off season, opposing pitchers have been reading the book on Korea and these these young guys, and are going to try to adjust to them in this upcoming season. So, again, a track record of being able to make these adjustments on a year to year basis. Uh, and, and Correa is just so young. I mean, too, you know, it's, you look at these guys and, and you think about the, what you, you were doing when you were 21, 22. And it's, it's like the excitement of, 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 of having that huge breakout season when you just hit the ground running. We don't know how he's going to do this year. We really don't. And everything, all, all these projections now having him in the first round is just pure, pure speculation. It really is. And, and you're building your team. That first player you're picking in the first round is, is a core foundation component of your team. You just don't want to take on a lot of risk there. 
Yeah, that's been a mantra of Baseball HQ for a long time. Those top dollar players, you're not really looking for profit because the cost is too high to reasonably expect a profit. It's nice if you get one, of course, but uh, you you really can't afford to take a loss on a, a first round pick or a $35, $30 investment. And it seems that, that that risk is very much present. I mean, if somebody takes Carlos Correa number six or number seven or whatever, or Chris Bryant around the 11, 12 range, yeah, maybe they do pan out, you know, but it does it I agree with you that it does seem like too big of a risk. Another kind of risk is injury and and Giancarlo Stanton is still in top 10 in most of the ADP rankings that I've seen and at uh, Labor uh, earlier this week. Uh, that seems too risky for me because of injury risk. How do you feel about Giancarlo Stanton in that regard? Well, Stanton's a little bit different in that that he does have a track record of of a high level productivity. So we know what he can do. The question is is purely about the injury risk, and uh, you need to take that into account. I think if he didn't have the injury risk, we could make a, a, an argument for him to be for him to being a top three pick very easily. I mean, just a few years ago, we were projecting him to for 40, 45 home runs and not even blinking. Um, so you have to take that risk into account. How much you discount him because of the injury risk? Well, I mean, I think that's a personal tolerance level. I, again, don't like to take risky players in the first round, so uh, I wouldn't take him if he dropped to me, uh, probably until, if he was still there in the second round, which he's not usually, but I, I might take him at that point. But uh, yeah, uh, his upside is huge. You know, it's high risk, high reward type of thing, but uh, you have to take the risk into account. And it could be that maybe our expectations are a little understated for Stanton. I mean, he does get injured almost every year, only 279 at-bats last year. But the year before was 539, which is, you know, uh, close to full-time. Before that, a couple of years in the 400s. So it's not like a complete bust. But, gosh, if you're drafting for 45 home runs, he's never hit more than 37. He's done that twice. And uh, you really are basically counting on a full season, first of all. And then, on top of that, you're also looking for a bit of a production bump on a per-at-bat basis. Uh, it's true. But, you know, we, we have, on the per-at-bat basis, we have seen that, that the uh, the potential is there. But again, you know, you have to weigh the the, uh, the benefit and the risk of, of, of drafting someone like that. We, the scouting reports have all been pretty unanimous in the fact that he's probably the most powerful hitter in the majors, uh, if not one of the top two or three. And so it's a matter of, of counting on the health, which we, he has not had the track record of, of being able to stay healthy. He's, he's really only put in full seasons of at-bats in two out of his, what, six years in the majors. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a risk to take him uh, at a full level. But if you can get him at a discount, um, I think he's worth it because the upside is huge. Yeah, I agree with you, but I, I, I'm pretty sure you're never going to get him at a discount because somebody's always willing to bet the come. Yeah, well, that's 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 the way we play this game. We, you know, we, you're betting on the possibility, and, and in a lot of cases, the the person who's going to win this league is the one that takes the most chances. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ron Chandler. And Ron, we have been talking about aggregated data and the misuse of aggregated data and data in general is one of the topics in Ron Chandler's other book, your new Fantasy Baseball Annual. In some of the marketing material for the new book, you ask, uh, why do we need another Fantasy Baseball Annual? Okay, I'll bite. Why do we need another Fantasy Baseball Annual? <laughs> well, you know, uh, what I've been talking about recently is that... Um, yeah, I think about the definition, one of the definitions of insanity, where you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. 
Well, I think that's what we've been doing for you know 20, 30 years now. We we, we go into our our uh, our draft season each year. We we do our research. We have our values. We do our projections. Um, and we, we play the season out, and yet there are very, very, very few people out there who can claim that they win consistently year in and year out. So we're doing the same thing. One year we'll finish second, the next year we'll finish 10th. And, you know, maybe we can blame it on the players, but maybe the failure is in the process. So I was looking for a way maybe that we can change our entire mindset to the whole process of drafting a team and constructing a roster and and maybe this 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 um, paradigm shift if you will uh, might open up some opportunities to do something different and and maybe uh, give yourself a bit of an advantage so uh, I've been working on this for a while and uh, actually a lot of the work that I had been doing at baseballhq.com kind of led to this because the Mayberry method was um, a step in the direction of, of trying to embrace the imprecision in the process. And what I've done now is, is to take it even a step beyond that. You mentioned the Mayberry method, uh, a way to generalize player expectations into larger kind of groups and then sum them at the roster level. And now the book introduces this new roster management tool you referred to earlier called BABS. I was wondering, is it a nod to Barbara Streisand? I'm sure probably not, but what does it mean? <laughs> No, it's 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 not a nod uh, to Barbara Streisand. Although um, one of the underlying concepts, it's it's not about numbers. It's about people who need people. <laughs> <laughs> people who need numbers. <laughs> yeah, people who need numbers. But uh, really, we, the whole process is getting away from the numbers because I think the numbers are deceptive and they kind of lead us astray. Uh, there is an inherent uh, expectation that there's a certain precision in using numbers that allow us to rank players and to distinguish between players, but in fact, uh, you really can't do that. And it's shown year after year that as much as we think we can project how many home runs a player is going to hit, what an ERA a pitcher is going to have, we're always a fair amount off. Um, and so what I've done is I've, I've taken this whole concept and said, all right, let's, let's get away from the numbers. Let's stop thinking in terms of statistical goals because I don't care if Nolan Arenado is going to hit 35 homers or 40 or 45 or even 50. There's, there's no way to know exactly what number he's going to end up on. So uh, let's, let's, let's stop doing that and reset our skills profile to more general terms. Let's, um, let's define skill as, as a moderate skill or significant or extreme as compared to the rest of the player pool. And that's basically what I did. I took each individual skills element and I said, uh, if a player was in the top 50% of that skills element for the player pool, we'd label him as a moderate skill. If he was in the top 25%, he'd be significant. If he was in the top 10%, we'd call him extreme. And we'd build out profiles for each player that way. You know, Nolan Arenado is extreme power and uh, a significant batting average. And uh, then we add the component of risk. And we look at the liabilities of each player, injury risk, experience risk, whether they're on a new team or, or they're getting older. And we create this, this, this balance sheet, of, of which is essentially a profile of each player, and we build our rosters off of that. So that, that's really the underlying concept of this. When you say you're going to build your roster on that basis, uh, can you explain uh, how, how that works? Well, sure. Basically, you have a budget or a set of goals. So depending upon how deep your league is, whether you're in a 12-team AL or NL or a 15-team mixed, there will be a certain 
a target that you have to hit as far as how many players contributing to the power category, how many players are contributing, how many pitchers are contributing to the strikeout category. And then on the flip side, on the liability side, you have limits. You're limited to X number of injured players or X number of, of young players. And then you have to decide when you're in your draft where you're going to spend those liabilities. If I'm going to draft a Giancarlo Stanton, I'm using up one of my injury liabilities. And if I only have three or four to play with, is that the spot where I want to use that up? Would I rather use that up uh, more in the end game where there's a player who might provide more profit? And there's, there's the, the issue there of your lower cost players are likely going to provide more profit than your higher cost players. So maybe that's where you want to take more chances with injuries and experience. And you build the roster out that way, setting your goals as number of players who contribute to certain categories. I'm curious about the uh, idea of precision and uh, and being willing to uh, step aside and look at it in a, at player values in this larger, more uh, broad sense. And and the 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 experience I have is uh, I played in in um, Tout Wars mixed with uh, Fred Zinke, and you know Fred, and he's a very successful player, and he has very strict values that he refuses to bid above except in extraordinary circumstances. And Larry Schechter, also a very successful player, uh, he, in his book, says you need to value your players out to two points of decimal, not just $24, but $24.17, and then not bid above that except in extraordinary circumstances. Uh do these guys have a process that is working in spite of itself, or wh- how are they making it work? Uh, that's a good question. I, I actually had lunch with Larry uh, this past week, and we talked a little bit. It's, it's, in some ways, it, it's a, I think it's a bit of an anomaly, because logically, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's, it's really hard for me to, to be able to pin down a, a particular player's stat line and say, this is exactly what he's going to do, and this is exactly what he's going to be worth. There's the, the proof is that there's just so much volatility. I mean, it's actually research that you did, Patrick, uh, at BaseballHQ.com uh, a few years ago. Uh, you, you talked about that the normal production volatility varies uh, in any 150-game span. A, a 300 career here could hit anywhere from 250 to 350. You know, so you know, if, if, if that's the case and your research proved it out, if I'm looking at a player who hits 30 home runs one year and 35 the next and 40 the year after that, that might not be growth. That just might be normal volatility. Yet most people are going to call it growth and run their projections off of that. So I, I prefer to take a step back and, and think more in more broad terms that players just have general skills profiles rather than nailing into a certain stat line. And, and yes, Fred and, and uh, Larry have had a lot of success the way they do things. Um, but, you know, there, there are a lot of tactical things that they do, too, that set them ahead. You know, Fred is a, is a massive trader, so he's, he's always in the trade market. And Larry's very uh, particular with the players he picks up during the season. So it's not just the drafting process. And uh, I think just logically, intuitively, it makes more sense to, to see players less as statistical producing robots and more as human beings who, who generate a, a larger range of skill. What do you make of the argument from people who do believe in, in getting those projections to, say, uh, at least to a, uh, a dollar level of 25 bucks or something like that and, and home run of, of 27, understanding that there are error bars involved, but the argument you hear from those kinds of players is, over my entire roster, 
the guys who overperform are going to offset the guys who underperform. And when we total it all up, I'm going to be pretty close to my projections because some of them are, are going to be right where they should be and, and the highs will offset the lows. Yeah, I think that's garbage, actually. Um, I think at the end of the season, the winner is going to be the team who had the most overperforming players and the least underperforming players. There is not a balance. You can't have the expectation that it's going to balance out over the course of the roster. I think you have to push the envelope and look for players who, who are going to exceed expectations, and that's where uh, that's where you win your leagues. So uh, to think in terms of a balance, I think, is faulty. And how does the uh, BABS uh, model help you identify those kind of high potential profit upside type guys? Well, we we uh, we define skill in in uh, in general terms. So a lot of times we're uh, we have a certain expectation for a player based upon his stats. Uh, the skills indicators might uh, determine otherwise. You know, for instance, a player like Michael Conforto rates very very high on the skill scale, and of course he's got the huge experience risk because he hasn't you know put in enough playing time. But that opens up an opportunity for you to say okay. If Conforto's out there late in draft, and uh, I know he's got this skills upside, I can rate him on the same level, ultimately, as perhaps a Bryce Harper or a Joey Votto, because that's where his skills are lying right now. But he hasn't reached that yet because he's still young, but there is profit there. And especially in a keeper league, it's those pockets of profit that you want to build a team around. I love a passage you have in the book, uh, and I quote, if you are convinced that Jason Kipnis is worth $25 and you land him for $21, you will have overpaid if the rest of your league sees him as no more than a $19 player, even if he's really worth $30. If anything ever summed up rotisserie pricing, Ron Chandler, I think that's it. <laughs> well, you know, once you've defined a player, getting him onto your roster is really all about the marketplace. So it doesn't matter what he's really worth. It doesn't matter what you think he's worth. It only matters what you think he's worth in comparison to what everyone else thinks he's worth. So, uh, yeah, that, that's why you can't just draft solely off of your own list or off of an ADP list. It's got to be a marriage of the two because uh, that's, that's where you figure out where you're going to get the players. In an auction setting, you could probably even narrow it down further and say, the price you're going to have to pay is a function of what the highest guy in your in your draft table thinks he's worth because that's the guy the one guy you got to beat right and uh, it's <laughs> the winner is always the the, the last one uh, to bid so it, uh, that's that's your benchmark for any particular player and further complicating matters of course context changes during the draft all of a sudden um, I, I tell an old war story in one of my first years in uh, rotisserie baseball where somehow um, I and another fellow at the table had neglected to fill our first base spot. And uh, there was, a, I can't even remember his name, just a kind of an ordinary Cleveland Indians first baseman, probably worth about 15 bucks in real life. And we, we got to 40, I think, before the bidding finally died down, solely because he was the last available uh, guy at that position who could provide anything, and we had the money. So it, it, it's, a, it's a complicated uh, formula that determines these prices in the real world that I think really um, is important to understand and that your new system really does address, that there's no such thing as a value beyond what somebody's willing to pay, just like anything. Right, exactly. I mean, I mean what you uh, describe is exactly how I ended up with Nick Punto for $19 in Tout Wars back in, I think it was 2007. So, uh, 
yeah, you know, it's supply and demand. That's really what all it is. You mentioned that the stats uh, you, in one of the ch- early chapters in your book, you say the stats are out to get us, and I think you've described that. Then you go on and say in another chapter, the psychology is out to get us. What do you mean by that? Well, there are a lot of there are a lot of pitfalls that we fall into just a bit based upon how we think about certain situations. I mean, f- for instance, there's the small sample size bias. You know, last year at the end of the season, Rich Hill came up for a few starts and was phenomenal. And now everybody views him as a draftable commodity, forgetting the fact that prior to those four starts, he was a non-entity. So you know, maybe he's he's learned something. Maybe something is different. But to to base an inflated draft value based upon that small sample of starts in September against inferior competition is is really faulty. So I mean, there's uh, pitfalls like that. There's there's situations where we, we try to figure out patterns within what's essentially statistical noise. You know, like I, I said earlier, if you're looking at a certain trend and you're trying to extend it out, you really don't know if that's a trend at all. So we have to be careful about stuff like that. Um, there's uh, the, the psychological bias of um, uh, looking at aggregate research results again and trying to uh, draw conclusions about individual players. You know, we always say that, you know, a, a, Players uh, peak at a certain age range, you know, 26, 27, 28. Well, not everybody peaks at that age, and some players peak at 33, and some players peak at 23. Um, And since you only have 23 shots on your roster to get it right, to put a lot of credence into that is is, a faulty line of thinking. You know, park effects and position scarcity and things like that are things we need to be really careful about because they uh, affect our decision-making, and, uh, you know, it's, it's faulty thinking. And recency bias, which uh, it's, it's just so prevalent in, in everything we do. I mean, it's why players like um, you know, Carlos Correa and Manny Machado and, and, and some of these guys are in the first round. It may not merit first round uh, picks for some of these guys. And it's because of what they did just last year, forgetting the fact that their career extends longer and last year might not have been the most representative uh, of, of what they are as a whole. So um, all these things are pitfalls we fall into that we have to kind of take a step back from. And, and uh, uh, it's one of the reasons that I thought it was important that we find another way of, of constructing our rosters. That Indian's first baseman was Paul Sorrento, by the way. I, it just popped into my head after uh, after I started talking. Do you remember him? I do remember uh, him, yes. <laughs> n- not a $45 player by any stretch no, of the imagination. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ron Chandler talking about Ron Chandler's other book and his new valuation method or roster planning method, I think would be more accurate to say. And Ron, after you laid the theoretical groundwork, you started going through the player pool position by position, talking about various players' assets and liabilities in keeping with this new structure that you're using. And I'd, I'd like to get your comments on some of the s- things that I thought were a little surprising. Starting with the catcher pool, uh, you have Matt Weeders and JT Rail Muto quite a bit higher than most readers would expect. What is it about those two players that pushes them up on your on your method? Uh, well, Weeders ranks out very highly on, on the, uh, the skill scale. He's, uh, as far as power is concerned, he's he's up there in the Brian McCann and, and the, uh, uh, the the Wellington Castillo class. So um, as far as the ass, his assets are concerned, um, he, he's just as good as those guys are, and he actually adds a bit of batting average that those guys don't have. So 
his downfall is clearly the injury risk, and that's a huge risk. So you have to take that into account when you're uh, assessing where to where to draft him. But from a skills perspective, and, and we rank these guys basically in, in terms of skills colored by their their liabilities. Um, he ranks high up there. Real Muto is another interesting guy because um, speed is a very scarce commodity these days, and he is one of the very few catchers that will contribute to that category at all. In fact, uh, he's got positive assets in power, speed, and batting average. The only catcher uh, projected to be a full-timer this year who has all three of those assets. So that pushes him up a little bit. Needless to say, you're not going to draft him higher than than, uh, some of the more established commodities because he has a bit of risk as far as experience is concerned. But when it comes to his assets, he's got a lot of upside there. So that that pushes him up the list. Among your third basemen, you have kind of a, a, a few tiers, but they're smaller than what we usually see. You have uh, Aaron Otto, you mentioned earlier, and, and Josh Donaldson right up at the top. They both have multiple assets, strong assets, and no liabilities. Uh, let me start with those two guys. Does this mean in your mind they're pretty much interchangeable, that you'd be happy to have either one of them, or would you still choose one over the other? No, and that's the nice thing about doing it this way. <clears throat> it uncovers pockets of talent where there are anywhere from two to five to sometimes a dozen players who all have the same exact uh, skills profile and uh, liabilities profile. And they are, for all intents and purposes, interchangeable because since statistical variability is so wide, you really can't project with any precision that one is going to be better than the other. Now, you might say that Arenado in Colorado has, is more likely to uh, put up more home runs because of the ballpark, but, you know, Toronto's a pretty good ballpark, too, and you can't stay with 100% certainty that Donaldson wouldn't hit more home runs than Arenado. The statistical bars, the error bars are too wide. So, yeah, those two players are identical in terms of this uh, system, and draft one, draft the other one really doesn't matter. Staying at third base, you had Todd Frazier a tick above Manny Machado and Adrian Beltre in the labor mixed draft that just occurred. Uh, Machado was a first-round pick. Todd Frazier was well into the second, uh, I should say in the fourth, and Adrian Beltre was in the fifth. So uh, how come Todd Frazier rates above guys who are seemingly, um, at least as far as these experts are concerned, better than him? Um, the system actually is, is kind of down on Machado uh, for several reasons. Uh, number one, um, I think he overstated his power a little bit last year. He's he's more he's has a ground ball tendency, which kind of puts his power numbers at risk. His his speed numbers are also more a matter of of uh, opportunity than skill. His his speed skill really hasn't changed at all over the last few years. It was more uh, getting the opportunity. And with a guy who's who's a productive player like him, you don't know whether he's going to be given. Uh, a green light as consistently as consistently as he was last year, so that's at risk as well. And last year was just a huge breakout. And when when players spike uh, like he did, there is going to be a regression. So uh, we expect Machado's numbers to come down significantly last year, uh, this year. And uh, Frazier, who has uh, a bit more of a track record of putting up uh, this type of numbers, moving to a a good ballpark too. Uh, his power actually rates right up there with Donaldson and Arenado. Uh, so it, it pushes him just slightly up against Machado, up, up ahead of Machado in the list. I'm interested that Frazier uh, has new team listed as a liability on his ledger, and in fact, a uh, new team is always a liability in the in the system as I understand it. 
But by most accounts, moving from Great American to the cell is not that big of a deal. Why is, a, a, as far as power is concerned, why is a new team automatically a liability in the system? Yeah, when, when we give somebody a notation of a new team, it's, it's not necessarily park effects. We, we look at that separately. New team is just the, the whole idea of, of going into a new environment and especially crossing leagues. Uh, for a lot of players, you never know what that, that's going to mean. In most cases, it's, uh, it, it might mean a slight adjustment period, you know, like last year, you know, what happened to Johnny Cueto moving to Kansas City. Uh, there, and, and it's, it's not a huge knock against their overall profile. It's more just a notation to, to let you know this guy is on a new team. So if he struggles, it might be because of that. Uh, and, and in Frazier's case, it, it's, it's there just as, as a notation to say, hey, he's crossing leagues. It's a new team. Uh, maybe there may be an adjustment period there. Among the shortstops, Ron, uh, two of the three top guns, Corey Seager, we mentioned Carlos Correa, both very young. And indeed, your BAB system puts liabilities on their ledgers under the experience column. How does the BABs calibrate the serious liability of lack of experience against the very high level of assets in terms of skills? Well, it really doesn't do it automatically. It's something that you have to assess for yourself. You need to take a look at each, each uh, player's skills profile and decide whether you want to take that risk, uh, depending upon whatever risk they have. It, it, in the case of Seeger and Correa, I mean, the experience is, is a huge risk, especially at the point where they're being drafted. So you know, once you've set the goals for your roster, it's really up to you what your tolerance level is for the risk and, and what your goals are, whether you want to take that on. In the outfield group, you have Trout and McCutcheon atop the field. Uh, McCutcheon was well down the list at the labor draft. I was surprised by that, given that he's been relatively consistent. Then you have Harper and Stanton, three and four, because of injury risk liability. And this seems to treat Harper's injury risk as more or less equal to Stanton's. And I, I find that pessimistic for Harper or optimistic for Stanton, maybe. Meanwhile, George Springer, farther down the list, is rated more serious as an injury risk than either of them. So how are you calibrating injury risk in the Babs system? We basically have two levels of injury risk for, uh, for each player. And the lower level of injury risk is based on uh, whether they were out for about 30 or so days um, last year uh, with not much of a history of, of, uh, of injury or that they have an injury where they're expected to be back at full strength by, in spring training, but there's still that, that uncertainty. The higher level injury risk is, is players who have either a more severe injury or a more um, consistent or long-term pattern uh, of injury. Stanton's kind of, you know, on the edge there. We kind of decided to, to, I just kind of decided to give him the lower level rather than the higher level because he's supposed to be fine for spring training. Uh, he's swinging the bat okay. His risk mostly, to give him even any risk, uh, is is the fact that he has a history of not making it through the season, even though his current injury is supposed to be healed. So, I mean, it's, it's, I can't say it's a perfect system because you, you can't view injury as, as an either or, and it's, it's tough to set levels. It's more of a continuum. Um, but uh, since, since the entire system really is based on the broad stroke variability of, of each of these elements, uh, it kind of fit into that. So, you, you have, it's a judgment call, certainly, but uh, we need to make some 
some indication there that the, the injury situation does exist for a lot of these players. And finally, among the risks, you have uh, regression risk. And, uh, of course, regression works both ways. It can also be a, an asset. If, if a player has had a down year, you might expect him to regress upwards and improve. Among uh, starting pitchers, you have Cy Young winner uh, Jake Arrieta as the 13th starting pitcher behind Tyson Ross, behind Cole Hamels. And the blot is this regression risk. So how does regression work as a liability and how does it work as an asset? Well, it's it's all uh it's it's all about whether their performance in the previous season was was out of character with their history and how much far out of character. So uh, if a player struggled a lot last year but had a a, a longer history of of being productive like a Carlos Gomez uh versus a player who had just a, a huge spike season like an Arietta, um that will determine in which way the uh, the regression risk the regression indicator will be uh, listed if it's it's listed on the asset side we expect it to be a positive normalization if you will and if it's on the, the liability side it's more of a uh, uh, his performance is likely to drop off and as far as Ariad is concerned it, it's important to note that uh, even though he's listed with the regression risk, he's still in the pocket of talent that uh, normally goes by the fourth round in most drafts and really is an indistinguishable from players like Chris Archer and Bumgarner and Carrasco and Matt Harvey. He's he's right in that group. Uh, all of those pitchers review as interchangeable commodities, and it's just that he he's not going to put up the level of numbers that he put up last year, but from a skills profile, he's right there with the rest of them. But he's above on the list. He's above Tyson Ross. Carlos Carrasco comes to mind, Cole Hamels. If, a, if a, somebody was using your system and they looked at, at, uh, at their sheet and they said, I need a good starting pitcher right now, would they, would they seriously be advised to skip Arietta in favor of Ross, Carrasco, or Hamels? Well, Ross is kind of on the fringe there, and I write a little bit about him in the book. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you could consider him pretty close to, to those other guys. Uh, again, we're looking at we're kind of relying on the recency bias of last year to, and especially his second half, which was ridiculous. He's not going to put up that level, those level of numbers and skill uh, in 2016. He's just not. History shows that these players are going to regress and sometimes significantly. So I would not um, hesitate at all to draft Carrasco ahead of Arietta if I feel that's, that's the best fit for my team. Um, again, they're interchangeable, draft one, draft the other. Uh, it, it, you can't project what they're going to do with enough precision to really determine that one is actually better than the other. The, the, the error bars are just way too wide. And if you believe that on a theoretical basis, then when you look at somebody who has this added variability from regression and the possibility of of the variability being downwards rather than upwards no place to go but down for a guy like Arietta after that year then maybe it does make a lot of sense to look somewhere else and let somebody else take on the risk even though they get the package of skills as well uh, Ron you've decided to issue the book only in electronic formats why didn't you print it like the uh, Ron Shanders forecaster the book hadn't been written in advance you know the forecast we write in the fall and we distribute it in December and I I started doing the research for this book in the fall, but didn't actually start doing the writing until December. So I figured it was going to take me a good few months to write this. There wouldn't be enough time to really get it written and uh, edited and printed and, and distributed in time for the draft season. So I, I decided to dis to uh, uh, distribute it uh, chapter by chapter on my uh, ronchandler.com website. So uh, when you go into that website, over the course of the last few weeks since uh, mid-January, I've been releasing one or two chapters a week. 
uh, which has allowed me to stagger my writing schedule and uh, also gives me the opportunity to go back if, if conditions change. Uh, if it's, say if I'm, it's the middle of February here and something changes that affects what I wrote and in back into chapter two, I can go back to chapter two and make the changes. And uh, it's more of a, a living document. So the readers can get the book at the website. Are you also going to put out an aggregated PDF version or an EPUB type version? Yeah, that's the plan. Um, I was I was originally going to do a, an ebook. I'm not so sure about that now, but there would definitely be a, an aggregated uh, PDF uh, released in the first week in March uh, with all the charts and everything updated from the past two months. Well, you mentioned the site, uh, ronchandler.com, and it clearly has been designed to complement the book. The book and the, and the, uh, the book content and the site definitely complement each other. Uh, what features did you design in to make sure that the site and the book are so complementary? Uh, well, the site basically is now my new home for, for doing all my writing uh, outside of uh, what I've been writing for uh, ESPN.com. Uh, so, you know, where I used to write my weekly column at BaseballHQ.com, now uh, uh, that'll be at RonShounder.com. And, and so th the focus has been on the book during the, during the winter here. And, and uh, once we get into uh, March and April into the season, then I'll be doing more of my, uh, my regular columns. So it's, it's, it's all should look pretty seamless. And that, that, that's kind of the, the intent there. You really seem to be promoting the use of comments on the stories and articles that you're writing to, to interact with subscribers. It seems like a really modern, up-to-date way of handling content. It certainly seems to be the wave of, of the most successful um, media properties that we're seeing out there is getting the, the readers and subscribers involved. Have you seen the benefits of that already? Uh, yeah, and actually I'm doing something a little bit different also, which has is, is worked out real well. The... Um, uh, the most of the content is is uh, is available with a membership to the site, so there is still a paywall there. But all the comments are are there for free, so you can kind of read a, a short teaser for each uh, each chapter or each article, and uh, the comments there uh, are accessible and they're very insightful. They help, uh, I mean, in some ways, be marketing material for uh, for the site, but they uh, provide a lot of insight and. And the questions that I've been getting have been wonderful. So it's, it's actually helped shape some of the uh, future chapters of the book. Uh, someone wrote a question about keeper leagues, and I had forgotten that I really should address the whole topic of keeper leagues, which uh, I'll be doing in a in a column next month sometime. So it's uh, it's it's a wonderful interactive type way to uh, uh, have a dialogue with my audience and and, and keep the content coming and keep it uh, of high quality. Yeah, and to keep it current and, to, as you said, to, to correct things that you've missed or even factual errors. I know uh, commenters are, are in a, at any website are always uh, happy to point out that you've got a number wrong or a name misspelled or something like that. And it all does raise the quality. I mean, you have to have a thick skin sometimes, especially when people are being critical, but it really works. Uh, the site also has a Roto Hall of Fame, and you've got about 130 players so far in the Roto Hall of Fame at ronchandler.com. Um, what are the criteria for induction, and uh, how did you come up with this idea? Uh, yeah, I started this a couple of years ago. I just We're all kind of frustrated with the whole uh, voting process in, in the regular Hall of Fame, and I thought maybe there's, there's another way to look at this. And, and some folks have suggested that maybe it should be based on statistics alone. But, you know, as fantasy leaguers, we already have uh, a completely objective measuring stick for uh, players, and that's our rotisserie dollar values, because... You know, they measure some important categories and uh, they're, they're benchmarked by the level of offense in any given year. So uh, during the, uh, the steroids era, the, the, the 
the uh, dollar values would have been normalized as compared to when it's more pitching heavy these days and it's all reflected in the dollar values so I, I set up a series of criteria to determine uh, whether uh, a player was haul worthy and uh, basically for batters it's a, it's a minimum of a $20 average dollar value over the course of their career and a minimum of $25 value <clears throat> during uh, their peak 10 years and they have to finish uh, ranked among the top 15 of all batters at least four times during their career. Uh, pitchers are similar, the dollar value benchmarks a little bit lower, uh, but in doing it this way we've uncovered basically the top rotisserie players, the guys who have helped us the most and you know, we really don't care whether uh, Barry Bonds and, and Roger Clemens were uh, uh, great human beings, but whichever team they were on in, in fantasy baseball, they helped them, and that's all that was important. So, um, uh, yeah, so basically we, uh, we, we uh, look at the players who have retired over the past year. We don't wait five years like the regular Hall of Fame does. There's no really point in doing that. And if a player is retired, uh, we'll... Uh, assess his statistics and see if he meets those benchmarks and if he does uh, we'll induct him. It was uh, a little bit controversial that you announced up front that you weren't going to be concerned with steroid use or any other forms of uh, questionable conduct by ball players. The only question was how much did they help. Uh, did you get any sort of feedback or flack about that uh, taking that position? No, no, not really. Um, Again, this this is fantasy specific, and for those people who owned uh, the steroids guys, you knew that they helped you, and they helped you win leagues, and that's uh, that's really what this is all about. It's it's a rotisserie hall of fame, and it's people who helped you in uh, rotisserie baseball. Putting you on the spot, who are the first guys that went into the rotisserie hall of fame when you started it? Uh, well, we didn't go back. Uh, basically, just covered the rotisserie era, so really only went back to the 1980s. Um, Oh, who was so at the very beginning? We had guys like uh, Tony Armas and uh, Albert Bell, and uh, you know George Brett was in there. Uh, looking here, Will Clark, Joe Carter, Vince Coleman, Andre Dawson. So I mean, the guys who basically we've been on our fantasy and rotisserie leagues uh, back when we started playing it in the 1980s. Uh, Mike Schmidt was one of the first inductees. Um, and uh, so it, it's 103 players since that, that era of the 1980s. Um, are there levels in the Hall of Fame? We do have one uh, gold hall, uh, which are just a group, a small group of players who uh, basically uh, exceeded all these benchmarks to, some, to a, a, an extreme degree. Their, their minimum average dollar was 25 their peak was $30. Uh, they finished in the top 15 at least five times. They spent at least 15 years in the majors, yada, yada, yada. And there are only 12 players who met all of those criteria for this quote-unquote gold hall. And uh, so we, we separate them out and we present them. Uh, they are, let me bring up the page here, um, Andre Dawson, Eddie Murray, Ryan Sandberg, Paul Molitor, Ricky Henderson, uh, Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Roger Clemens, Greg Maddox, Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, and Vlad Guerrero. So those uh, are the members of the Gold Hall. Uh, Ricky and, and Barry Bonds had the highest peak value of any players, both over $40 during their careers. Uh, and their careers were long, both over 20 years. Uh, and Barry Bonds was in the top 15 14 times. Um, which was pretty amazing. I mean, he he was a core element to a lot of winning fantasy teams in the uh, the 90s and the 2000s. 
And uh, the same case can be made for him as a regular Hall of Fame member is that he did it in two different ways. As a younger player, he had some power, but he could really run. He was a very effective base dealer in addition to being an all-around good hitter. And then, of course, he transitioned to being much more of a pure slugger later on in his career, so he helped you two ways. Paul Molitor is a great player, too. I had Paul Molitor on a couple of winning teams myself. Uh, another good base dealer, good, great all-around fantasy player, terrific. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ron Chandler. And Ron uh, invited some listeners to mail in questions uh, to bhqradio at gmail.com. And uh, John from Toledo asks, in a single league auction, normally the studs get nominated early. How much effect can an owner have by nominating the players out of order, starting with lower valued players early? Well, I guess it depends upon the caliber of the owners in your league and how easily they're rattled. But, I mean, there are two things that you can try to do and during the course of, a, of an auction to try to give yourself an edge. And that's, to one, number one, to disrupt the flow of, of the proceedings and, number two, to steal time. And by nominating a lower-cost player, lower-priced player, when the, all the big names are going out, you serve to do both of those things because... People are starting to get into a flow, thinking that they're going to have some time to uh, to sit through the bidding of the thirty and the forty dollar players. So when you throw out a guy who's maybe only a five or six dollar guy, suddenly you've steal you've stolen time from them, and they have to really sit up and, and think about what they're doing. And, and many times you can uh, you can get some good buys doing it that way. But there, you know, it's again, it depends upon the owners in your league. Some of them will will catch on right away and and might overbid you, thinking that that's somebody you want. Um, so, and, and I would think if you're going to throw out a low-priced player, it's someone who you do want. Otherwise, you, it doesn't seem to make sense to, to do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it could be a good tactic. It could work. Yeah, it does depend so much on the other people in your league. If people are confident in their assessments of players, it's not going to work as well because they're simply going to bid if they think it's worthwhile. The one advantage, it seems to me, is that you might catch everybody waiting to see how the how the auction is going to unfold especially in, in key positions. So if you throw it, especially I think a starting pitcher or an outfield early, people might be saying, ah, I'll let him go for now because I've got bigger fish to fry down the road. Uh, but it's it's an interesting tactic, but it's not as uh, uh, fantastic as people think uh, sometimes. Uh, Steve from Reading, Pennsylvania, how do you see the current DFS legislation playing out for this season and then down the road? It's a mess. It's a mess. Um you know, we're probably uh, a good three to five years away from the dust settling on this. Um, uh, you know, all 50 states are basically want to do things their own way, and the uh, the Fantasy Sports Trade Association has uh, lobbyists currently in, I think, about 19 states um, to try to fight this battle. Um, odds are there, there are going to be more restrictions. Uh, the, the games will be taxed. Uh, the fallout, uh, I, th- I think the days of paying $3 to win a million dollars is probably probably going to be gone. <clears throat> but as, as for this coming season, there may be a few more states where you can't play. I mean, there are already a handful of states where you can't play these games, but there may be a few more. Um, and uh, beyond that, I, to be honest, I don't know, because uh, some of the states that are clamping down and are saying that uh, DFS is absolutely gambling, I'm not sure if uh, they're people in those states are going to be able to play yet. Um, uh, we'll have to see what happens over the next few weeks. Pat from Connecticut asks, uh, carrying on in the same theme, given the muddled situation with DFS, is there an opportunity for a return to Chandler Park in monthly fantasy? 
Uh, well, it's possible. I don't have any uh, plans in the short term to uh, to go back to that yet. And uh, my timing in introducing the monthly game <clears throat> was pretty bad, given uh, the uh, the explosive popularity of, of DFS <clears throat> at the same time when I introduced it. Uh, and getting out of it last uh, last summer, which uh, yeah, I didn't like to have to do, but uh, forced me uh, into position to do that, was, uh, again, a timing situation that uh, turned out to be uh, prescient because uh, <clears throat> when it all hit the fan back in, back in the fall, it was a good thing I was out of it at that point. Um, so at some point, I might uh, revisit it again. Right now, I'm going to focus on uh, the stuff I do best, which is uh, the writing and the innovating and uh, uh, basically uh, what I know best. So um, at some point, maybe we'll look at it again, but uh, no plans in the short term. Uh, Gene McCaffrey, our mutual friend, uh, is big into DFS, and in his Wise Guy Baseball, he said, why not two or three-day leagues? Why not week-long leagues? You know, why, why can't they set up leagues of, of all kinds of different lengths? Why does it have to be one or the other? I thought it was a pretty interesting uh, idea. He's an interesting guy. Uh, Reggie in Charlotte asks, in a league that limits its transactions and has no streaming, are you more likely to buy a 2 or $3 starting pitcher in the end game versus uh, holding out for those $1 guys? Well, to be honest, especially with, with all I've been doing with uh, this current system I have, I don't know that there's a whole lot of difference between a dollar pitcher and a 2 and $3 pitcher. At that point in the talent pool, um, you're, you're looking at below average talent, you're looking at elevated risk, um, you're looking at perhaps very young players, and it's, it's really tough to project any of them with any uh, precision to determine that someone's actually a $1 or a $2 or a $3 player. Uh, at that point, they're all basically the same. Uh, maybe you find might find some contextual things that separate one from the other, but uh, for all intents and purposes, they're all the same. It, it, it really doesn't matter. I like to use the Baseball HQ draft grids. I'm going to incorporate uh, some of your thinking into, into my planning this year, and uh, I have a zero to five box for starters at the end of drafts. Uh, I, I just agree with you. I think they're all pretty much the same. What you're looking for, in my opinion, not that anybody asked, <laughs> is uh, you're looking for you, you don't want to get a guy who's got a seven-year track record of being a $3 pitcher. You want to get a young guy or a guy who's changed situations or something that has some path to upside that you can see. You don't want to lock yourself into a uh, Jason Vargas. The Jason Vargases of the world are always going to be there, but you, there's just no upside to them. I don't see why you'd want them. Uh, right, exactly. Mike in DC asks, in a $260 auction draft, how do you budget for corner, middle, uh, infield spots and your fifth outfielder? So he's budgeting by position. I'm, I don't know if I agree with doing it that way. Um, I think you, you have to I, – I don't think you budget by position. I think you budget by skill level, by a pocket of talent. If it turns out that it's a certain position where uh, there's a, a lot of talent in, in that position and a lot of opportunities to budget you know, a 30 or $40 player, then, then, then yeah, you can do that. But um, – to, to, to be kind of rigid in, in, in doing uh, a corner infielder type of thing, I, I, I probably wouldn't go that route. I would just probably wait and see what the draft brings to me. Ron, uh, during the uh, preseason part, we're asking our experts to give us our sleepers and bleepers for 2016. You know what a sleeper is, of course. Bleepers is a term we're using. It's just a clever rhyme. For players you look at and think, no, way do I want this guy on my roster this year so with uh, with your uh, agreement let's start with some sleepers in the American League who do you think is a sleeper hitter you got your eye on 
I like Carlos Gomez bouncing back this year. I think uh, last year was an anomaly. He was hurt for most of the year. I mean, he was consistent, a first-round type player. Um, I mean, I'll go out on a limb and say that I think he could return more value than uh, Manny Machado this year, and yet he's uh, he's going second, third round. So uh, uh, there's no reason not to draft Carlos Gomez high this year. In the National League, how about a sleeper hitter in the senior circuit? Well, last year at HQ, we were all on uh, Starling Marte, and he did improve. Um, and I think uh, there is more improvement there. And when I see him going behind players like uh, A.J. Pollock and... Uh, uh, Mookie Betts, I think they're all basically the same guy. They have the same skills profile. And uh, in the case of Pollock and Betts, last year was, was kind of a spike in performance. And there might be some regression there, whereas Marte has been improving consistently over the last few years and, and might be the best one of the three. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, Marte is still being underdrafted a little bit. Of course, consistent improvement over the last three years just could be the variation. Got to keep that in mind yeah, all the time. Yeah, uh, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> In the American League, how about a pitcher that qualifies as a sleeper for you? Everybody's down on Felix Hernandez. Um, I think there was a little bit of skills erosion last year, but he had two absolutely awful starts where he gave up uh, 18 runs in, in two and two-thirds innings. If you take those two starts out, and I know you can't arbitrarily do that, uh, his uh, th- mid-three ZRA uh, drops down to about 275, which is pretty much in line with what he had done the previous year. Uh, I think he's being downgraded a lot more than he should and probably will do a lot better this year. And how about a sleeper pitcher in the National League? Uh, we touched on him briefly before. Um, Tyson Ross is, is is in a pocket of talent of uh, pitchers that are all typically going by the end of the fourth round. Uh, his his bugaboo is he walks a little bit too many batters, but uh, he's he's put up some decent whips in in small in small groupings and in, in the half second half of the last season, I believe he, he had a, a whip of under 1.2. And I think there's upside there. San Diego is still a good ballpark to pitch in and uh, uh, he could take a step up. And now let's move over to the bleepers. These are guys you do not want, although they might be big names. How about a American league bleeper hitter? Yeah, I'll go with the, uh, the obvious uh, Carlos Correa. I just at the cost that he's going at, I'm not going to take that chance. And so he will unfortunately not be on, any of my teams, I, I'd actually much rather, much rather have a guy like George Springer, who I think might even be a better talent in the long run, but is being downgraded because of the injury situation. I think his, his skills profile, aside from maybe batting average, is uh, just as good, if not better, than Correa. In the National League, how about a bleeper hitter? Uh, here again, Chris Bryant. Um, I just think his batting average is not high enough to justify a first-round pick. I don't see him. His, his strikeout rate is way too high. I don't want to draft a guy in the first round who potentially could hit only 250, so I would stay away from him. Yeah, his strikeout rate, he, uh, he could approach like fully one-third of his at-bats or plate appearances being strikeouts and could touch 40%. Uh, he hits the ball very hard, and that's why his batting average is as high as it is given those strikeouts. But strikeouts don't just affect batting average, Ron. As you know, uh, it, it also means... He's not driving in all the runs that are available to be driven in. He's not reaching base to score runs himself or to steal. A strikeout is a bad out, and and unfortunately, for now anyways, we have to believe that Chris Bryant just makes too many of those bad strikeout outs. Uh, how about in the American League, a pitcher who's a bleeper for you? As much as I've liked him the last few years, um, I think uh, Dallas Keuchel's skills profile doesn't measure up to where he's being drafted these days. He's he's not as big of a strikeout guy as, as you'd want uh, drafting as high as he's been going you know, last year was uh, his, his breakout big Cy Young year and, and you're going to have to expect there to be some sort of regression there 
Uh, so, um, yeah, I'd probably stay away from Keuchel where he's being drafted now. He did improve the strikeout rate, though, uh, last year, did he not? He did, but he's still not in the same classes as uh, you know guys like uh, Matt Harvey and Arietta and, and, and uh, Kluber, those guys. And how about a National League bleeper pitcher? I'm really worried about Shelby Miller in Arizona. Um, I mean, he had an ERA of about three last year, but his expected ERA was about a full run higher. And uh, Arizona's just not a good place for uh, um, for pitchers. It's too much of a hitter's park. So I'd be uh, real concerned that he's going to be able to hold up uh, the investment they've made in him. In the labor draft uh, just the other day, Ron, uh, Zach Greinke went – uh, after a lot of guys who I don't think are as good as, uh, at pitching as he is, is this, do you think, uh, an Arizona fallout problem? Yeah, and it's it's really the same thing with Granke. There's, uh, he had a huge year with the Dodgers, but uh, there, there's going to be a good deal of regression, just natural regression from the, the, the huge season he had, and then add the ballpark factor in there. Granke's probably going to uh, not do as well as some people think. Well, Ron, uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, remind our listeners where they can find the site, uh, how the uh, fee structure works, how they can get a hold of the the uh, content of the book through the site, your f- Twitter, do you have Facebook, all these kind of things. Sure, sure. Uh, my new home is ronchandler.com, so it's very easy to find. Um, we offer memberships for uh, 19.95 per year. Uh, it gives you access to everything <clears throat> in uh, the other book, uh, all the information, all the charts and everything. Um, I also offer, we'll be offering the PDF version for $9.95 beginning, uh, at the beginning of March, but that does not include any downloadable files or updates. Um, and uh, I'm at Twitter at, at Ron Chandler, on Facebook at ronchandler.baseball. Uh, and uh, I'll be in uh, writing every Wednesday at ESPN this year, uh, starting in a few weeks in March. So uh, you'll find me around. Busy hands are happy hands. Ron, thanks so much for doing this. It's always a treat to talk with you. And uh, if I don't talk to you before uh, March, I'll see you in New York for Tote Wars. Yeah, so we'll be uh, sitting across from each other in the, the AL draft. Well, maybe next to each other. They say to sit next to the guy you fear the most. So uh, I think maybe I'll try to <laughs> snag that spot. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks. Thanks again. It's been my pleasure. Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com. He writes for ESPN, as you heard, and of course he has the RonChandler.com website supporting the new book, Ron Chandler's Other Book. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number three of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this edition of the show, the founder of BaseballHQ.com and the proprietor of RonChandler.com. It was Ron Chandler, and it's always such a great experience to talk with him. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our forecaster, position profiles analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope you enjoyed Master Notes this week, and I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available and you'll be able to stay in touch with the show. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. 
Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.